Well, good morning, Cornerstone. As Jordan said, my name is Matei Kondrishan, and I'm here with my wife, Bridget, and our son, Rowan. Um, it's been a little while since we've been with you on a Sunday, um, but it is always such a joy to gather with you. Um, we're always so encouraged by you and your faithfulness to the Lord and to each other. So thank you for having us. It's a joy to be back. If you have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to John chapter 15. We'll be considering Jesus' words in verses 1 through 16. I'm going to put this down so I can see the McDevitt family. <laughs> well, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. It's a day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. And this is an important moment in the Gospels. By his entrance, Jesus declares that he is God's chosen king. He is the Messiah sent by God to rescue lost sinners. But instead of setting up an earthly kingdom, like many expected, Jesus sets his face to die to save his people from their sin. The appointed time for Christ to die is approaching. And Jesus knows that what is about to happen to him will challenge his disciples. In fact, later in the narrative, we see that the disciples are confused and trying to figure out why their king would die. But before he dies, Jesus spends time instructing his disciples, teaching them about his kingdom and what it will mean for them to follow. So let's read this text and we'll jump right in. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I, uh, if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So right in verse 1, Jesus makes a claim about himself. He says, I am the true vine. Now if you're unfamiliar with the Gospel of John, or, or maybe haven't read it in a little while, John has built his Gospel around various claims that Jesus makes about himself. These are often referred to as the I am statements of John, as Jesus will say, I am, followed by some claim. For example, Jesus says, I am the bread, of the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. Or just in the previous chapter, one of the most familiar statements of Jesus, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in each of these statements, 
Jesus is making a claim that he is the Messiah, sent by God to rescue his people. And in each of these statements, he carries themes that extend throughout the whole of Scripture, giving us insight into who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish. It's really worth studying each of these statements, but this morning we'll just look at the one here in John 15. And you'll notice here in verse 1 that Jesus begins by saying he is the true vine. Why would Jesus say he's the true vine and not just the vine? Is there another vine or a false vine? Well, to unpack this, we have to look back a little way in Scripture. In fact, we have to go to the very first page of Scripture, scripture to Genesis chapter 1. Why Genesis 1? Well, as we'll see, Scripture begins by comparing people to trees. Obviously, people are not actually trees. There are obvious distinctions. But the creation story is written in such a way to compare people to trees. And this is a theme that is prevalent throughout the entire story of the Bible. See, Genesis 1 recounts God's creation of the world, how God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And the creation account in Genesis is set up in two parallels of three days of creation. So on the first day, God creates light, and on the fourth day, God expands upon his creation of light and dark as he creates the sun, moon, and stars. On the second day, God creates a separation between water and sky. God creates fish, and on the fifth day, God creates fish to swim in the water and birds to fly in the sky. On the third day, God creates dry land, and on the sixth day, God creates living creatures to walk on this dry land. But there's something interesting about the third and the sixth day. In the first two parallels of days, there's one creative act recorded. But on the third day and the sixth day, there's a second act, or a bonus act, of creation. And this difference is meant to draw our attention to this change in this pattern. You see, on the third day, the bonus is the creation of vegetation and trees that spring up from the dry ground. The trees bear fruit and have seeds that allow the trees to grow and multiply abundantly. And on the sixth day of creation, the bonus creation is the creation of mankind, male and female, made in God's own image. And at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, we see God's command to man, God's command to mankind to be fruitful and multiply, much like the trees are to be fruitful and will multiply. And Genesis 2 expands on this parallel as it calls special attention to the fact that both man and trees are created from the ground. So the days of creation parallel the creation of trees and man. Both trees and man are created to be fruitful and multiply. And both trees and man are created from the ground. But it doesn't end there. The fate of mankind is directly tied to two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life is centered in the middle of the garden on a hill, and it represents God's own creative life that Adam and Eve are invited to eat from. By eating from the tree of life, Adam and Eve are connected to God's own life and receive his eternal abundant life in themselves. Eating from the tree of life requires Adam and Eve to trust God and to seek their satisfaction in him. They have to submit to his own good design for their lives. And eating from this tree produces life and communion with God. But there's the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this tree represents the opposite of trusting God. It represents seeking our desires and satisfaction apart from God. It represents seeking wisdom apart from God's wisdom. And as we know, Adam and Eve eat from this tree. And what happens? The once perfect world is broken. Instead of producing life, Adam and Eve will now experience death. This false tree 
of life that promise joy and satisfaction apart from God will only produce unsatisfied desire. You see, these opening chapters of Genesis give us two themes we can trace throughout Scripture. The first is God's good design for mankind. God has created men to be like trees. God created man to be fruitful and abundant. But we cannot do this apart from God. We need to be connected to God and his life. And we do that by trusting God and living according to his design for our life. And the second theme is the choice between trees. Not only are people likened to trees, but the initial temptation in the garden uh, represents a repeating pattern we see throughout Scripture. We will see in various places in Scripture people faced with choices on mountaintops with trees. And the question that is posed is this. Will mankind choose to listen to the Father, trust Him, and eat from the tree of life? Or will they choose their own way? Will they choose authority for themselves? Will they seek satisfaction for their desires and pleasure apart from God? And Scripture is clear. Whenever people take for themselves, we see death and destruction. Instead of the fruit of blessing, that man is supposed to produce. So let's consider these themes in the life of Abraham. When God calls Abraham to leave his country and his people, do you remember the promise that God gives Abraham? God promises to make Abraham's family into a great nation that will be blessed by God. And why? Why does God want to bless Abraham and his family? Well, in Genesis 12, we see that God plans to bless him so that his family will in turn be a blessing to all the nations of the world. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He sets his covenant love on Abraham and promises to make him exceedingly fruitful and to bless him. And in this covenant, God tells Abraham to walk before God and be blameless. God wants Abraham to trust him and to walk in his ways and the promises that he has set before him. And when Abraham does that, God promises to bless him and to make him fruitful and abundant. And the fruit of Abraham's life is meant to be a blessing to those around him. And this shows us that the fruit that we are designed to produce is not mostly for ourselves to enjoy. It's not, it's not for God necessarily. Uh, he doesn't need the fruit of our lives. When we live according to God's design for our lives, we, we become like a garden of Eden for others. We become an oasis of goodness and blessing that others may come and see the way to life. And we see this played out in Abraham's life. When he trusts God, he bears fruit that blesses others around him. We see this when Abraham rescues Lot from the nations that arise against him. We see it again when Abraham prays for deliverance of Sodom and Gomorrah. God hears his prayer and delivers Lot and his family because of Abraham's righteousness. But in the story of Abraham, we also see the opposite of this good fruit. When Abraham doesn't trust the Lord and takes matters into his own hands, we see injustice and conflict. We see Abraham lie about Sarah being his wife, which endangers her and others creating conflict between Abraham and neighboring kings. As Abraham and Sarah are getting old, they they still don't have a child, and they begin to question, will God really make good on his promises? Maybe he forgot, or maybe he really can't do what he said he could do. So, in an effort to take matters into their own hands, Sarah offers her servant Hagar to Abraham in an effort to try to conceive a son. And when they don't trust God, Hagar is taken advantage of. And this leads to further conflict and issues down the road. In fact, this, all, this conflict almost kills both Hagar and Ishmael, but God intervenes and cares for them. There's a paradigm here. There's no middle ground. We either trust God 
We live out his design for our lives and we bear fruit that blesses others. Or we take for ourselves, seeking our own desires apart from God and satisfaction apart from God. But scripture shows time and time again that this only creates destruction and death. You see, God's design is that we bear fruit like trees that blesses and nourishes others. But when we don't trust God, we become like black holes that consume everything and everyone around us. Nothing will satisfy us apart from God, though. So we keep consuming and keep hurting others and ourselves. But the story doesn't end there with Abraham. After Abraham's failure with Hagar, God tests Abraham. You see, God made good on his promise, and Sarah conceived, and they had a son, Isaac. And God commands Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice to God and a test of Abraham's faith. You probably know the story. Abraham lays the firewood on the back of his only son, who climbs a mountain to his death. When they get there, Abraham binds his son to the tree, and as Abraham raises his hand to take his son's life, God intervenes and tells him to stop. God rescues Isaac from death and provides his own sacrifice, a ram in the place of Isaac. You see, Abraham failed in his life. In fact, Abraham failed pretty terribly with Hagar. But here, at the top of the mountain, Abraham is faced with a decision. Will he trust God and eat from the tree of life, or will he continue to take matters into his own hands, bringing further destruction to those around him? He trusted God, because why, Hebrews tells us, he knew that God would be faithful to his promises. And God restores Abraham. After Abraham passes this test, he reiterates his promises to Abraham to make him fruitful and abundant and that they will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And the story of Abraham provides a key development in our tree theme that we're looking at. If we want to eat from the tree of life, we will have to pass through death. You see, in, in Eden, Adam and Eve were able to eat freely from the tree of life at no cost to themselves. Adam and Eve enjoyed uninhibited access to God and his life. But now, in this fallen world, trusting God means dying to ourselves. So fast forward a little bit. God is faithful. He keeps his promises to Abraham. Abraham's family becomes a large nation, the nation of Israel. And God calls a man named Moses to lead Israel to the land God promised them. And do you remember where God calls Moses? He calls him from the top of the mountain from a flaming tree. And it's at the foot of this same mountain that God makes his covenant with Israel. And in his covenant with Israel, God promises to bless Israel and make them fruitful and abundant if they will walk in his ways. Why? Again, we see that God wants Israel to be a blessing to the nations. God wants to make Israel into a people that will represent his life and his goodness to the world around them. And how does Israel do with that? Well, not long after they say that they will do everything that God commands, they go and break his commands. They set up an idol for themselves to worship, and this sets up a recurring pattern in Israel. There's some good moments in Israel, like King David trusting God and defeating Goliath, but there's a lot of not-so-good moments in the history of Israel, like King David, who sees a woman who is pleasing to his eye and takes, for her, for, takes her for himself, killing her husband in the process. You see, instead of trusting God and being a blessing to the nations, Israel seeks their own desires apart from God. Later, kings set up idols, which are like trees set on high hills, where Israel will seek pleasure apart from God. And through this, Israel brings 
destruction upon itself. Now you might be wondering, we started with Jesus saying, I'm the true vine, now we're on some history lesson of Israel. How does this all tie together? Well, as you know, God brings justice to Israel. The nation that was meant to be a picture of blessing, a life connected to God's own life, has failed time and time again and has become fruitless. But Psalm 80 Verses 7 through 19 bring all of these ideas together, recounting the failure of Israel and looking forward to the Son of Man who would one day restore the nation. Listen to these words. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man who have you, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then, you shall not, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This psalm points forward to a day when Israel will be restored, when God will send the son of man to accomplish what all mankind has failed to do from the beginning of time. And because of their wickedness, God brings justice to Israel and sends them into exile. All hope seems to be lost. The Garden of Eden seems lost forever. But it's during Israel's exile that God sends his prophets with hope. These prophets tell God's people that he is still at work to carry out his promises. He has not forgotten what he has promised. And even in the midst of their exile, He is working to one day fulfill all that he has promised. You see, on our own, we cannot keep God's commands. Our hearts have been corrupted by the fall, and we want our own way apart from God. Without God's intervening grace in our lives, we will choose our own way 100% of the time and bring death and destruction to ourselves and those around us. So God gives the promise of a new covenant. And the promise of the new covenant brings the promise that God will put his own spirit, his own life-giving presence within us. The Holy Spirit will cause God's people to walk in his ways, to live according to his design, and to bear the fruit that is in accordance with his life. In Ezekiel 36, we see the promise of the new covenant, and this promise is accompanied with garden imagery. In God's promise to restore his people, God promises to restore them to their intended purpose, namely to be fruitful and to live in submission to God's design. Listen to these words from Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no more famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And they, the nations, 
will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Even while Israel is in exile, God is at work to fulfill his promises. He is at work to restore his people into a people that would flourish and produce abundant fruit that will be a blessing to all nations. And how does God go about accomplishing that? God sends the true vine of Israel, his son, Jesus. And the prophet of Isaiah looks forward to this day. In Isaiah 11, he writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So Isaiah tells us of the day that God will bring forth a man, a branch springing forth from the ground, and this man will perfectly live out God's design. And what will be the result? Fruit that is a blessing to all nations. You see, Jesus' life embodies God's design. Everywhere Jesus goes in the Gospels, you see him at work, reversing the effects of the curse. It's as if Jesus is a walking embodiment of the Garden of Eden. In the desert where there is no water, he offers himself to quench thirsty souls. Where there is no food, Jesus makes food abound. Where there is brokenness, Jesus brings wholeness. And where there is death, Jesus brings life. And the Gospels record what happens. People from everywhere come to see Jesus, to feed on the fruit he offers. And this fruit nourishes them and heals them. Jesus perfectly lives out God's design, and we see its effects. He is the true vine. He is the perfect fulfillment of God's good design for mankind. And when we look at Jesus, we see humanity as it has been designed to be. But you remember the story of Abraham. After the fall, life is produced by death. And while many look to Jesus for healing and life, others become hateful and envious of him and seek to destroy this tree of life. But this plays right into God's plan. Jesus says in John 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, Jesus is at work to reverse every effect of the curse. And in that process, we see a, re- a reversal of Adam and Eve's failure in the Garden of Eden. The Gospels tell us that Jesus goes to a garden to pray and experiences great agony over his approaching suffering. And in this moment, Jesus is faced with a choice. Will he submit to the Father and trust the plan that the Father has, has planned to bring life and blessings, blessing to all nations? Or will he seek his deliverance from the approaching suffering? And John twelve twenty seven through 28 gives us the answer when Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus does what no man before him could do. 
He faces the greatest temptation and submits to the Father's design. And God the Father lays the wood on his son's back and leads his only son up a hill to die. And in this incredible act of God's love, we see humanity at its full wicked potential. Instead of loving the tree of life, we crucify him. There was no ram caught in the thorns this time. Jesus remained on the cross. But even in his dying, Jesus' life explodes with blessing, saving a criminal who's crucified beside him. But just as the seed goes into the ground and dies to bring forth new life, so Jesus is buried and rises from the dead. And this is what it means for Jesus to be the true vine. He has accomplished what no man could. He has perfectly lived out God's design for mankind. At every temptation, Jesus is obedient to God's command. He is obedient and is connected to the love of the Father. And now, Jesus rises from the ground as a new tree of life. And here in these verses, Jesus now invites us into his life. Will you come and eat from the tree of life? Or will you continue choosing your own way? What do we gain by resisting him? Our desires are never satisfied apart from Christ. Jesus' words tell us that the branch that does not abide in him is fruitless, and it serves no purpose but to be burned. If we persist in our own ways, we become like black holes, consuming and destroying everything around us. Come to Jesus. Find satisfaction for your soul. Be transformed by God's grace. Here, in these verses, Jesus invites us into his own life. He invites us to be transformed from desert wastelands into fruitful trees that would bear fruit to his glory and for our joy. This is the way to true satisfaction and joy. This is how Jesus is glorified, that we would bear fruit and find our joy in him. Jesus offers us the freedom from ourselves. He offers us freedom from constantly consuming and seeking satisfaction apart from him. As one pastor says, Jesus invites us to find our greatest pleasure in him. But that begs the question, how do we abide in Christ? I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I never really understood what the word abide meant. It's kind of an older word. So we need to ask, what does it mean to abide? How do we abide in Christ? And I think in a good effort to comprehend this, sometimes we oversimplify the idea of abiding in Christ. We say things like, well, abiding in Christ means praying and, and, and reading his word. And it's certainly no less than that. We just read Psalm 1. The man who meditates on the word of God is like a tree planted by streams of living water who bears his fruit in its season. But as you have hopefully seen today, it's so much bigger than the checkbox things. I think it's maybe even a little more abstract than our Western minds like to think. When Jesus says, abide in me, he is inviting us into his life to live the way he lived, to live in submission to the Father, to live out God's design. To put it another way, we can read it as, live in me and I will live in you. Jesus is calling us back to God's original design for mankind. He's calling us to be connected to God's life and love through obedience to God's design. And it's living in God's design that we experience the fullest joy in our lives. And how are we connected to Jesus' life? Well, through his body, the church. It is no accident that Jesus invites us into his life, then Paul turns around and describes Jesus as the head of the church. If you want to be connected to Jesus' life, you must be connected to his church. God calls us to live in community with one another. 
as a means of grace in our lives. Our fellowship with one another is one of the key ways God connects us to his life. And what does this produce? Abiding in Christ produces fruit. You might ask, what does that fruit look like? It looks like a new humanity, a new garden of Eden. It looks like a church that lives in submission to Christ and his authority. It looks like families that function under Christ's headship. It looks like us, fathers, giving ourselves to serve and love our families. It looks like parents loving their children, not just tolerating them, but truly loving them and teaching them about God's good design for their lives. It looks like wives loving and respecting their husbands. And I know we make that hard at times, but have you ever stopped to consider how radical it is just to speak well of your spouse around others? It looks like children respecting and honoring their parents. It looks like believers being united with one another, loving each other, forgiving each other, and bearing each other's burdens. This is really what the New Testament is about. It's about living out God's call for us and the communities he has created. And the church and the family are not supposed to be inwardly focused. We are called to bear fruit. Why? So that we would be a blessing, blessing to the nations, that we would be a blessing to the community around us. See, God is at work to create transformed people and transformed communities that would be a light to the lost around us. And you might ask yourself, man, if this is so good, why does it feel so hard? Well, that's why verses 12 through 16 are here. Just as Jesus had to die and rise from the dead, bearing fruit in our lives often requires dying to ourselves. You see, everybody wants utopia. Everybody wants the Garden of Eden now. But not everyone is willing to give up their way and die to themselves. We can eat from the tree of life, but we must pass through death to have his life. Our old ways must die, and our selfishness must die. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis. I'm going to read it. He says, The Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. And this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view are the things that have to be changed. As long as the old self is there, its taint will be over all we do. We try to be religious and become Pharisees. We try to be kind and become patronizing. Social service ends in red tape of officialdom. Unselfishness becomes a form of showing off. I don't mean, of course, that we're to stop trying to be good. We've got to do the best we can. But the real cure lies far deeper. Out of ourself and into Christ we must go. Our life is hidden in Christ's life. We must die to ourselves and take from his life. Again, consider the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, through 23. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things sound so good, but none of these things are easy, especially when we're surrounded by sinful people and we ourselves are sinful. It's not easy to be loving and patient at the end of a long day of work. It's not easy to be patient with a child that keeps asking the same questions over and over and over and over and over. But what would it be like if the church was characterized by patience instead of having to be right? What would it be like if we were characterized by kindness instead of insisting on our own way? And what would it be like if we were characterized by self-control 
instead of being carried along by the desires of consumerism. In November, I had the ch chance of going to Ukraine and uh, help some churches uh, care for refugees. In the church in Ukraine, the, you might not know, but there's the Orthodox Church. You have both the Ukrainian Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and then the Baptist Church. And I was speaking with a refugee, and he said, before the war started, everybody saw the Baptist Church as kind of the weird, out there, kind of radical, odd people. He said, but since the war has started, it's the Baptist Church. They're really the only Protestant church there. It's the Baptist Church that has been serving and loving and caring for strangers. I observed person after person giving everything they had to care for strangers, for complete strangers. And that fruit stuck out to this man who is not a believer, but he saw the fruit of the church in Ukraine and he saw something different from these people. And that's what Jesus invites us into. He invites us into his life. If we share in his life, we have to die to ourselves. And as long as we live on this earth, it'll be a constant battle. But praise God, the story doesn't end there. We began on the first page of the Bible, and it's only fitting that we'll finish on the last page. You see, Revelation 22 gives us a glimpse into the life that we share with Christ in eternity. Listen to these words from Revelation 22, 1-5. through 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Scripture begins with a garden, and it ends in a garden. We have hope that one day we will be freed from this mortal flesh and be made whole again. But in the meantime, Jesus invites us into his life, and it's not easy. We will have to die to ourselves, but this is the way to true joy and true satisfaction. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we get to look at your word. God, we thank you that you have died and uh, risen from the dead and offer your life for us, Lord. We pray that in each moment of our lives that we would look to you for our true satisfaction and joy, that we would see your way, your design for our life as the way to life and blessing to others. God, I pray that you would use Cornerstone to be a blessing to Leavenworth and the surrounding area. Pray that we would be a people that would seek to bless others through the fruit that we uh, produce in connection with your life. God, help us to be um, unified in loving one another and a light to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.